You have reached the Every Little Thing helpline. Please leave your message after the tone. Hey, foreign friends. This is Amanda from Virginia. I have a sexual emergency. I'm just really been wondering why and when people started taking care of their teeth. Like, how did we end up with the standard of oral hygiene? Hello? Hey, Amanda. It's Flora from Every Little Thing. Are you ready to go on this Denta adventure? I'm excited to get some answers because I've been chewing on this for a while. Ooh, have you been working on your tooth puns? That's it. I have no more puns. That's as far as they go. All right, let's start with some routine intake questions. Have you ever wanted to replace all your teeth with dentures? Oh, no. Oh, no. Do people do that? I have no idea. Like, have you ever thought about filing your teeth into points? No. No. Do you ever name your teeth? I, I, I can't say that I have. I take it you've never turned your teeth into jewelry? No, but my mom did save them. I have them all with, like, my little baby blanket somewhere, like, in a drawer. I haven't decided what I'll do with my kids. Like, I mean, it seems like I should save them, but then I didn't want mine. Like, what am I, I going to do with those? Here, here, 18-year-old, you've graduated and going to college, starting your own adult life, and here are all your infant teeth. You know, you could give your daughter when she goes to college like a jewelry box or something and just inlay it with her teeth. <sighs> give it a nice little accent. <laughs> Who needs mother of pearl when you have little little bits of teeth? To tell, tell your daughter that she can thank me for that graduation present. I will make sure I'll sign the card from you. So, Amanda, you wanted to know, when did people start taking care of their mouth pebbles? Yeah, that'll add that to my vocabulary. We found the perfect person to answer your question. This is retired dentist and dental historian Henry Clark. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Henry. And if there were a dental hall of fame, Henry would know the name under every plaque. There was an American dentist, W.D. There was Miller. a dentist named G.V. Black. There was a, a surgeon, uh, Halstead. These people's name was Bass. and the That's pretty amazing. Henry's going to take us on a worldwide tour of early tooth care. How did people take care of their mouth bones, B.C., before Crest? <laughs> um, before Colgate, you mean? We're going to start in ancient Egypt. The first dentist we know of was named Hesse Ray, H-E-S-I-R-A. And he was identified as the surgeon to the pharaoh and the pharaoh's household. They would uh, use a lot of things as prevention that we don't think really worked, but they had some salves and medicines that they would use. And they would splint loose teeth with gold wire if a tooth was loose. The Egyptians used splints in living mouths and to make people look good for the afterlife. The Phoenicians also had advanced tooth care techniques. The Phoenicians began to make very sophisticated bridges oh. where they would wire in false teeth or cast artificial teeth out of gold. What about more mundane preventative care? When do we get things like toothbrushes? Right. No one knows exactly who invented the toothbrush and when. There's some evidence that it came from China, and we know of another early example used in certain Islamic traditions. The siwak, and what it is is a toothbrush that's made out of, you take the root of certain trees, and you can cut away the bark, 
and leave a section about a half inch long and it develops a little fibrous thing and you can use that to brush your teeth. Apparently Muhammad used to use one of these uh, sticks. So people were brushing, but not because they knew the cause of gum disease. For a long time, people didn't know what caused their chiclets to rot, but there were many, many theories. This is my personal favorite. The common thing that had persisted ever since the days of Babylonia, back about 1700 BCE, was that there were some kind of worms that got into the teeth. Toothworms. Gross. They didn't have microscopes, so was this just a mad, like, did they just imagine that that was, how, how, did, how did this hypothesis come to be? Let me send you exactly what they imagined. Oh, no. A picture is coming your way. We will put this picture on our Instagram at ELT Show. Wow, this is, um, I mean, they, I mean, this is really disturbing. Will you describe it? So it's like very beautifully artistic drawn with these very large teeth, like the roots of the teeth pointed down. And it's like hollowed out on the inside with snakes eating people, legs up in the air with like a sea of dead skulls in the bottom of the other tooth. Like, first of all, who are the people on the inside of your tooth? Second of all, how do the worms get there? Third, how does anyone sleep at night? Frightening as it is, the idea sticks around. There are ivory carvings of tooth worms from the 1700s in Europe. This myth kept going that long. That's like post-Mayflower. People tried all kinds of remedies for getting rid of tooth worms. Henry told us that people would try to smoke them out like bug bomb style. I'm sure that really helped their lung function going forward. Another remedy was swishing urine. I mean, of all things? That's the beginning of pistarine. <laughs> or they just yanked the teeth out. Can you imagine if you thought that this was what was in your mouth? Like, in all of your teeth? I would pull my teeth out if the, the urine swish and swallow didn't work. No one said anything about swallow, Amanda. You never know, it might have slept down. So that's a small bite of what we know about early tooth care around the world. The next stop on this tooth train takes us to Europe in the 1600s, where pearly whites were going through dark times. In this period, teeth are disgusting. Toothsome, it was not. They're black and they're crumbling and they're very heavily kind of plucked. Mm -hmm. This is Richard Barnett. He's going to strap on the blue bib and be our guide for this next part of the tooth tour. He's an expert in Europe's rotting teeth. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Richard. Okay, so what is taking a toll on people's shiver rattles? I'm thinking, is it alcohol content? Very sugary. Oh, you're so close. It's sugar. It's in the 17th century that refined sugar starts to become cheap enough that, that, that most people can have a little bit of it. And this has a devastating effect on dental health. Tooth sweet, teeth go downhill. Because it's delicious, Europeans haven't really encountered this kind of, you know, limitless... Uh, 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 I was going to say oral pleasure. That sounds quite wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> At this point, nobody's made the connection between sugar and cavities. But one thing is clear. People's teeth are a wet, hot, crumbling mess. So how do we fix it? Not exactly with dental care, because that was a mess back then, too. 
there were tooth care specialists, but they weren't exactly trained medical professionals. They could be called charlatans. Um, they could be called arachers or arachurses in uh, French. Uh, in English, they were uh, sort of plainly and demotically tooth pullers. You wouldn't call these very specialized practitioners. The thing that really distinguished them was the possession of a tool, which is called a pelican. Oh, my God. Richard, I'm looking at the pelican. Mm, exactly. Oh, no. Yeah, the, the pelican, in essence, is, is basically a kind of lever. Think of something like a crowbar modified to fit into the mouth. And you sort of wedge it under the, uh, under the top of the tooth enamel and, 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 yeah, lever it out. Oh, my word. No, thank you. I wouldn't want that coming at my mouth. It's so extreme. And it could be very brutal. If you read dental manuals, books of instruction from this period, they often rather nervously say, um, be careful when you're pulling out the tooth because you can pull out a lot of the jaw with it, adjacent teeth. The force can be such that you accidentally knock somebody out, give them a concussion, damage their eyes, something like this. It can lead to terrible hemorrhage. It can lead to huge infections. So although this is a straightforward business, it could be really very dangerous, and I've, I've no doubt extremely painful too. Are you still conscious? Flora. I'm disturbed. Where do you think people had this delicate procedure done? I'm going to give you four options. Okay. A, the privacy of your own home. B, a doctor's office. C, the local farmer's market. And D, ye old little shoppy of horrors. I mean, I feel like the natural answer should be the latter. Don't tell me it's the farmer's market. It's the farmer's market. Everybody gathers there. It's the great sort of social occasion of uh, feudal medieval Europe. And you will go there to the itinerant charlatan who just sort of goes from market to market. Stop it. Yeah, and he would pull your tooth. I mean, if you got to get your errands done, do it in one fell swoop. You know, maximize your time. But that just seems like I don't think I'd want an audience. It's not your goblet of mead? <laughs> Definitely not. Could I interest you in a public extraction if it was more theatrical? Like, I don't know, costumes on stage at a big fair? How does that sound? <laughs> That's a big fat no. There certainly were practitioners who would make more of a show of it. Um, they'd have music, they'd have drums, they'd have a sort of great sort of proscenium. Music? Yeah, we absolutely cover up the screams of, the, uh, of those suffering, no doubt. They could be rather spectacularly dressed, you know, flamboyant red costumes, that sort of thing. And again, red to conceal any uh, splashes of blood. I think part of the appeal of, of the tooth pullers is it's a good show. You know, this is a culture that's very comfortable and indeed rather enjoys public suffering. Think of the uh, sort of public executions of the period, which drew hundreds, thousands of visitors. This is like execution light, suitable for children of all ages. Well, exactly. This is the, all, all the fun of the fair, as I suppose we'd now say. There is one more option if you are a really rich person with really poor chompers. If you're wealthy enough, of course, you can pay somebody to come to your house or to the royal court or to your bedchamber or whatever it may be. But the treatment you receive is not going to be significantly different. We have reports, for example, of Queen Elizabeth I, um, the great uh, English monarch of the Elizabethan age, having her teeth pulled in exactly the same way as, as her poorest subjects. The old pelican. The old pelican, exactly. She might have been treated with a, a great deal more respect, I'm sure, and it would have been done in privacy. But no, the, the, the basic mechanics of it is pretty similar. So when did, like, we get into, like, the modern standard? Like, I don't know, minty fresh breath. Like, something had to happen. That's a good question. We're going to find out after the break.
Okay, when did we trade in the Renaissance Fair for the dental chair? Our rotten tooth expert, Richard, can tell us. The origins of modern dentistry lie in France at the end of the 17th century. Was there some really great, hygiene-forward, well-dressed person who entered the scene, who everybody wanted to emulate, and it started a revolution of clean mouths? Kinda, yeah. So the person credited with taking tooth care into modernity is Monsieur Pierre Fouchard. Fouchard initially trains as, uh, uh, trains is perhaps a strong word, he initially practices as one of these itinerant tooth pullers. But I think he's simply attentive to what's going on in France in the period. I think he's, uh, he's, he's evidently extremely ambitious, and I think he sees that there's a gap in the market for what you might call professional dentistry. He sees a gap in the tooth market because of a burgeoning bourgeoisie, and he proposes a whole new vision for dental care. He publishes in 1728 this absolute doorstop of a book. It's a practical guide of what you might call conservative dentistry. So instead of just pulling teeth out when they start to hurt, maybe you clean them, maybe you sort of tie the teeth to adjacent teeth to kind of hold them in place. Fouchard also has advice for tooth pullers. He's like, take your business out of the town square and bring it into an office. A nice office. You know, don't sit people in chairs, lie them on a nice comfortable chaise long, and don't go straight for them with a tooth key, warm it up in your hands first so that there isn't the shock of the cold metal as well as the, the shock of the pain. He says that a, a dentist should have a kind of light, sure, and steady touch as well. And there's one more important element in Fouchard's rebrand. Oh, oh. He renames the occupation. To dentistry? Did he make that up? I mean, he, he calls himself a dentist. And it's very striking, um, it, both in Britain and America, as soon as Fauchard's version of dentistry becomes popular, lots of English tooth pullers and lots of American tooth pullers suddenly start calling themselves dentists. Fouchard takes urgent care out of the marketplace and into dentists' offices. But when do people realize their oral nuggets need regular upkeep? We're back with Henry Clark, former dentist, current dental historian, and all-time dental name dropper. And he said, you got to look to the late 1800s, early 1900s. A lot happened right around the turn of the century. Yeah, there were just a huge number of breakthroughs at that time. Lay it on me. First up, a dentist filled in the cavity mystery. There was an American dentist, W.D. Miller, who was working in Robert Koch's laboratory in Berlin and did a series of very sophisticated experiments. He identified about 30 different bacteria, and he showed that those bacteria would metabolize sugar and create acid, and that's what caused decay. Toothworms are finally off the hook. So understanding tooth decay leads to other big changes. Dentists start cleaning plaque, and you start to get regular preventative dental care. Okay, tell me what you know about the toothpaste. As a matter of fact, it was about that time that uh, the toothpaste industry came out with toothpastes that were antacid and that were supposed to kill bacteria, and toothpaste really took off. There's also a revolution in cavity care at this time. Novocaine is discovered, cheap, long-lasting fillings were invented, and of course, the dental drill. There were drills before the 1900s, but there was room for improvement. The dental drill came in first as a, a foot treadle drill in the 1840s. Dentists used to have to pump this drill, and you had to have a lot of coordination to be able to pump the drill at the same time as you were working on the teeth. That is not what I want my dentist to be doing when I am getting my, te my teeth filled. Uh-uh. 
around 1900, the electric dental drill was invented. So basically, in the span of 10 years, dentists figured out what caused tooth decay, which led to cleaning plaque and regular checkups and toothpaste. And on top of that, cavity care went through a major upgrade. So by the early 1900s, dental care is starting to look more like what we recognize as dental care today. That is legitimately a revolution. I mean, 10 years, one decade. By the 1950s, people are flossing and brushing twice a day, or lying to their dental hygienists about it. Dentistry, as we know it, has arrived. Flora, you have given me more than I ever thought to hope. You mean more than you ever wanted to know? Uh, yes. But I did ask, so I do deserve what I have heard today. I love it when our listeners say, I guess I deserved this. What do you think you're going to be thinking about at your next six-month checkup? Well, I'm going to be really appreciative of that drill, and I'm going to be thankful that at least my teeth aren't black, and I never have to see a pelican in real life. That is what I'll be most thankful for. Thank you for the great question. Thanks, Flora. Before we leave teeth behind, listener Tess had a related question we couldn't pass up. How do they make people's teeth look really bad in TV and movies, even though the actor probably has really good teeth? Yes. Who is responsible for movie teeth? Tess, I think we found the right person to answer your question. If you see any teeth on film or TV... Yeah, we'll say there's a 99% chance they'd come through my hands. This is Chris Lyons' Toothmaker to the Stars. He got into movie teeth after making teeth for regular blokes in the UK. I run a dental laboratory. We service about 470 dentists up and down the country. So if you need a crown, a bridge, an implant or a denture, you go to a dentist and then they send it to someone like me. And at some point, Chris decided to add a second line of business, making leprechaun teeth and fangs. His teeth are in your queue. He's made teeth for Game of Thrones, Big Little Lies, Fleabag, Killing Eve, Peaky Blinders, The Crown. All the teeth we've done for Tilda Swinton, Kate Blanchett, Angelina Jolie, Leonardo DiCaprio, gold teeth, silver teeth. We can put jewels on teeth, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, you name it. Okay, so listener Tess wanted to know how you make movie stars' teeth look terrible. It's a good question. Like, let's say Julia Roberts needs to play a troll yep. with no access to dental care. Okay. What kind of teeth do you set her up with? We do two ways. We do one that's very, very thin, like 0.1 of a millimeter thick. If you imagine like a sports guard, but it's really, really thin and it fits over your own teeth, but we can discolor your teeth up and make you look like a really heavy smoker, a drug addict. And we can put cracks, little chips but it's your teeth, so the, the teeth shape doesn't change. And it's just on the front of the teeth? Yep, it literally goes between your teeth and your lips. It's teeth gloves. I've never heard them called teeth gloves before. <laughs> if they want to go more extreme, so we have gum recession, broken teeth, missing teeth, and make your teeth more crooked, then we use our other style, which is slightly thicker, and that just fits over the front of your teeth and then gives them the desired look. Give me the range of teeth that you do. 
Range of teeth. Right, well, we go from Wolfman teeth in Wolfman, which was huge, to tiny little thin teeth to close Madonna's gap in her two front teeth. Um, Then we go right down to the really ridiculous making teeth for dogs. Why dogs? Um, Kanye West got a pop video out where the dog, there's a Doberman barking in the beginning of the video. And they called me and said, we want this Doberman to have some gold fangs. So they brought this Doberman along and I made some gold fangs. And when the video came out, it's all shot in black and white. So you can't even tell the dog's got gold fangs. (laughs) Then we go for the looky-likes. So if we're doing Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher had very distinctive teeth. So we gave Meryl Margaret Thatcher's teeth. Then you've got Rami Malek in Bohemian Rhapsody playing Freddie Mercury. You can't play Freddie Mercury without Freddie Mercury teeth. How would you describe Freddie Mercury's teeth? Big. <laughs> Very big. We we made some actual sort of life-size for Rami, and they were just far too big for his face. What do you mean life-size? As close as we could to actual Freddie's real-size teeth. So, you know, we took measurements from pictures and reference, but they were far too big for Rami. So we ended up making about 20 different sets until we got the size just right. Is is that typical sort of 20 iterations of a set of teeth before you've finished? No, no. That was because it was such a tricky job. We had to make sure it was right. And it was the film I was most nervous about in all my career. Why were you most nervous about it? Because Freddie's a very iconic character and his teeth, you know, everyone knows Freddie's teeth. And there's a very, very, very fine line between being real or comical. And I was worried with the critics saying, oh, he's got joke shop teeth in, the teeth look ridiculous. And in fact, I didn't go and see the film until Christmas. I didn't go to the cast and crew show, the premiere or anything. I just didn't want to see it. I was very nervous about seeing it. What was it like when you saw it? I loved it. I mean, he was amazing. What about the teeth? Oh, well, of course I love the teeth. I mean, the teeth are a major thing of the film. You see the teeth from the opening to the end, um, and they look very believable. I think they look very believable. He loved them. I mean, we had to make a solid gold set for him as well. What? Well, why? Because he liked the teeth so much. So he asked me if I could make him a solid gold set of Freddy teeth. So we made him a set of gold Freddy teeth that he can actually wear, and he's, he keeps them for himself. Do you think they're they're right next to the Oscar on his trophy shelf? They'll be close by, I should think. They'll be close by. If I wanted to get a, a set of goblin teeth for a special night out on the town, yeah, how much would it cost? In US or English? <laughs> yeah, US. US, you'll be looking a minimum of $1,000. I don't know, maybe a milestone birthday? I don't know. <laughs> Could be worth it. <laughs> We've never said no to anything we've been asked. We've never said no. If you have a burning question you can't get to the bottom of, give us a ring, 833-RING-ELT. You can also find us on Instagram at ELT Show. Come for the toothworm picks, stay for the pelican. This episode of Every Little Thing was produced by Aaron Reese, Phoebe Flanagan, Annette Heist, and Flora Lickman, with help from Nicole Pasulka and Doug Barron. Our consulting editors are Caitlin Kenny and Jorge Just, mixed by Dara Hirsch, scored by Dara Hirsch. 
Every Little Thing is a Gimlet production and a Spotify original podcast. I brush my gum rocks three times a day. Goodbye. <laughs>